This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. My next guest has just joined me in the studio. Penny Harper is the co-artistic director of She Said Theatre and is directing uh, the the company's current production, Fallen. Penny, welcome to Triple R. <laughs> good morning, Richard. How are you going? <laughs> I'm alive. That's a good start. <laughs> uh, the rigour of making and creating and, and staging a show. So um, <laughs> I, I never know whether to get people in before a work or after, because if I get you in after opening night, people are just kind of like, I'm so hungry. Over, I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> but so Fallen is based on a true story about a house for quote unquote fallen women yep. um, founded by Charles Dickens. Yeah. How did you discover the existence of this place? Um, there's a wonderful historian called Jenny Hartley, and she wrote a book. Uh, a few years ago now called The House of Fallen Women. And Sienna Van Hilton, who is the co-artistic director of She Said and the writer of this piece, came across that book. And essentially Jenny Hartley set out to, to try and discover what this little footnote in Dickens's biography meant. So she tried to tra- trace the women, um, which she started to find was almost impossible once they kind of drifted off to the other side of the world. They either married settlers so their names changed or they just slipped through the cracks of history, not really deemed important enough to oh. be written down. Women not deemed important in history, fancy. Yeah, you know, I feel like I can relate to that a little bit. Um, so we read that book and even in Jen- Jenny Hartley's uh, sort of, it's a beautifully written book and I encourage anyone to read it, she's niggling at something. It's not just sort of like saying this was the institution and wasn't it great, which is sort of the way that other kinds of reports on it had been. She's sort of pressing into what what does the training mean for these women and how might that have impacted them. And the training is the interesting thing where um, kind of leaning in on. There were two rules. One was that you were never allowed to talk about your past once you entered the home. So it's essentially this don't ask, don't tell, wipe the slate clean. What you've done is so shameful that we're here to protect you by covering it up. And the second part of the training was that when they finished their kind of rehabilitation, they weren't allowed to go back to their communities in London, their families potentially. They had to get on the ships and move to the colonies far away. So Australia being the predominant one, Canada and South Africa also um, being destinations. So we sort of really sat on that and thought, well, if this is sort of the the kind of rules that are going to that are being sent over to establish this new country of Australia. What does that say about us here now and how we might have gotten to where we are? Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating story and partially you can see the the rationale perhaps uh, uh, for the send you away, for, you can never return to your community because in their eyes um, the, the, these kind of fallen women who may have been kind of sex workers or uh, or just from uh, a, a range of background, that kind of shameful past, in their eyes that's perhaps the, the way that contemporary society might look at drug addiction. And yeah. so in the same way that kind of somebody who has uh, – gone through uh, rehabilitation and, and uh, treatment for, for drug addiction or for crime or whatever. Right. Kind of like you can't return to your old friends and family because they'll just pull you back down yeah. into, into vice. Yeah, that's right. And that, and you can't sort of tell anyone about what you've done in case you're exposed, I think. There's a line in it where the matron says to one of the girls, no one wants to know, no one really wants to know. And that's sort of the lesson that's being drummed into them, that what you've done should not be talked about. If it's exposed, you're back to where you started. And the house really, the, the play really looks at the struggle these women are finding with 
sort of trying to be their authentic selves but not being allowed to be that. And so the production what takes place within the home, this almost kind of hermetically sealed environment in which the outside world is not allowed to or should not penetrate, which I imagine would then become quite a, a kind of hothouse atmosphere for emotion. That's right. It means that everything that happens in the play is all the drama they, they have to feed on. There's no external sort of, you know, some, most of them can't read, a few of them can, but whatever they're kind of saying or doing or acting on inside the home directly impacts the next girl along. So it um, it sort of is like a, a boarding school on heat, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds kind of terrifying. <laughs> it is at times, yeah. Now, the production, you did a, a previous production of this up in Sydney with Sport for Jove, That's I think, right. as, a, as a co-production, which fascinates me because often work is made independently in Melbourne and then it moves interstate yeah. to, to do a season at whether it's Darwin Festival or Brisbane Festival or uh, uh, an independent season up in Sydney. But you've kind of reversed that for yeah. this production. Ha- tell us just a little bit about that process. Well, um, we're an independent theatre company, which means we're always, um, as so many of our friends are in the in the independent sector, fighting for spaces, fighting for opportunities to be able to get your work up. And we had uh, Fall Almost Done as a reading a couple of years ago at the Sydney Festival Fatale, which is a festival all about women's work. And Sport for Jove saw that there and, uh, and they loved it and they had a few more resources than we did and they said, why don't we partner together to get this work up into the world? So at the time for us it was a really great opportunity to kind of pool resources with another indie company, which I think we should all start doing a little bit more, um, and for us to kind of have a, have a crack at it the first time around. We always say, she said, that everything needs another go. We work with new writing. That's what our company does. Um, and our show Heart, for example, changed dramatically from its first iteration at the Melbourne Fringe Festival where it won a bunch of awards to what it finally became four or five seasons later, really it finally landed and then toured for four years. So we're very aware that new work and especially the work we do, which is quite um, – quite embedded, quite complex. It's, it's incredible. We're really grappling with what is underneath this Australian society we're living in. It takes us sometimes a little while to really articulate that the way we want. So we knew that Sport for Jove were giving this great opportunity for us to, to partner, but we were already trying to set up the next season so we could keep kind of the conversation going, keep the struggle continuing. It's one of the things that you're absolutely spot on about is that notion of new writing taking time to, to, to settle in and, and, and become the work it wants to be. That's right. And it's, it's exactly the same whether it's on main stage um, uh, productions with lots of money thrown at it or yeah. independent theatre done on the on the smell of kind of ambition and, and an oily <laughs> rag. Yeah. That kind of work takes time to, to find its feet, to find itself. So which I guess it, on the one hand some people listening might be going, oh, I should never go and see a brand new Australian work then. No. I should give it at least three seasons for it to, to be honed and focused and, and developed. But for me part of the joy is seeing this – what can sometimes be a really raw new work uh, and just going, there's something here. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of being part of the conversation is really important. I think one thing I'd love to foster a little bit more in Australian theatre-going audiences is you are part of the conversation. We thrive on you, like your feedback uh, is essential to the way we continue to grow as artists. We don't do it in an echo chamber and we don't do it to keep it in the rehearsal room. We do it to see what parts are landing, what parts are flying, 
Uh, of course, we know the parts that aren't working. Tell us anyway. We're cool. We're strong. <laughs> We've got thick skins. But that kind of com- ongoing conversation about how we get to be better at what we do, which for me is about articulating what is really at the heart of the matter. Um, and I'm a, I'm a young director. I'm still emerging. So I, I want people to come to the show and I want them to keep telling us all what they liked about it, but what we could have pushed further into. That's part of the journey of being a theatre maker for me. And I find it fascinating too that it's not just about uh, the conversation and getting better um, that applies to theatre. This is exactly the same conversation that Australia as a nation That's needs right. to be having, which Fallen obviously therefore taps into as well, that what have we inherited from from the Victorian age or the Edwardian age and earlier? What are the, the kind of the, the, the stains and shames that this country is still not talking about or which we are talking about, but in the wrong way, such as when it boils up and with a, a senator praising the white Australia policy. That's right. That's right. And exactly. And that, and as women as well, there's that second layer of what we've been taught from that era, which is sexual repression, which is to be beautiful and pretty at all costs, which is to serve men. You know, even the training as domestic servants is is all about in service of the male structure, the male hierarchy. And we're still... Uh, you know, I was in an Uber last night coming home from the theatre and my Uber driver was saying, oh, no, I was telling about the show. And he's like, but it's not that bad anymore for women and I think we've got it all sorted out. And I just looked at him and I was like, well, you're clearly not a woman. Like, if you can say that with such confidence, you clearly don't know what it's like to still feel looked at, an object of, allowed to be touched, allowed to be spoken over. There's a lot of smaller subtle things that um, we're hoping the 1848 context will be able to bring it out in a larger way so that we can then reflect on the small ways it's still happening today. Fallen is the production we're talking about at 45 downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne. Uh, I'm intrigued to know a little bit more about the the tone and the style of the production. We've talked about some of its context and subtext and and so forth, but are we talking naturalistic theatre here? Are we talking some kind of heightened realism, magic realism? What will, when people see the show, what will they see? Sienna writes with this beautiful kind of poetic kind of nature of her text. So you'll see moments where girls are flinging, like throwing each other across the stage and pulling each other's hair and 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 being quite rough and violent. But then it'll kind of shift into something that's almost a heightened um, a bit of poetry that helps these women actually explore what's actually underneath them. So the, the ditzy funny girl then, you know, who we might have dismissed will actually have a moment where she'll say something like, you know, I'm all flesh that long and wants it. It rises inside me like dough in the sun. So these moments that kind of bring us out into the inner, the, the rich inner lives of the women. We've also got it in the round. So it should feel like you're quite um, peering in onto the world. And we've got, um, Clem Williams has done a beautiful job in the sound composition, which kind of feels a little actually like Australian Gothic rather than period drama. Um, and likewise, Chloe Greaves set, um, all of the women are in white dresses, uh, which is sort of an homage to the picnic and hanging rock kind of, um, canon, this idea that we're already leaning a little bit to the left. We're already kind of thinking something's not quite right here. I don't know if this training is actually what, what Dickens said it was. So we've got a little bit of that eeriness coming in. Um, and we're certainly trying to push into that. I'm also really intrigued by the fact that, I mean, this halfway house co-founded by Charles Dickens for fallen women, Dickens trying to rehabilitate women, Dickens' 
own attitudes towards women in his own <laughs> life was shameful and, and the right. way he treated his wife, for example. Right. So there's a hypocrisy at play there as well, that classic Victorian hypocrisy that we must be upright and moral and at the same time we'll kind of have mistresses or, or visit prostitutes. Or Absolutely. And be interested in them as well. It's almost like one of the characters says the, you know, the messier the better for our matron, you know, the kind of idea that we, we replace Dickens, he's not in our play at all, it's just women, but there was always a matron in the house. What actually would happen was Dickens would come into the house and have private one-on-ones with the women where they would tell him their sorry stories. He would write notes and a lot of those notes went into his books. So into Little Dorrit, for example, as a literally a, a, a direct part from something that happened in the house that then later made it into Dickens' own work. So instead of that, we have the matron as the person that they go to and report to. Um, but there's definitely that that feeling of as do as I say, not as I do, which I think is is an authority problem we're still having today in Australia. The production is She Said Theatre's Fallen. Uh, you can find out more information about the production and the company, She Said Theatre, at www.shesaidtheatre.com. And uh, if you want a book for the season of Fallen. Uh, tickets, 43 bucks. Uh, if you book in a group of six or more, 38 bucks and $33 concession. You can book by calling 9662-9966. That's 9662-9966 or www.45downstairs.com. 45 Downstairs located at, as its name suggests, 45 Flinders Lane. She said theatres, Fallen. I've been chatting with Penny Harpham, the director of the production and the co-artistic director of She Said Theatre. Penny, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Richard. My next guest for the morning has joined us in the studio. We're going to talk visual art now, but instead of talking about an exhibition or uh, an art movement or style, we're going to talk about colour and uh, and the, the, the very kind of pigments that artists use to make their work. David Coles is the founder and master paint maker at Langridge Artist Colours, which are based on Smith Street in Collingwood, but joins us not to talk about that particular business, but to talk about a book that he has authored called Chromatopia, A History of Colour. David, welcome to Triple R. Hello, Richard. Nice to be on. When did you first become fascinated in the making of artists' paints and pigments? At a very early age. Um, my parents owned an art store and they gave me, I would have been probably about 13, a small set of pigments, these little 30 mil jars. And although I didn't do anything with them, it was just to sort of gaze upon them. When you opened the lid, it was like looking into a little jar of powdered jewels. And I think from there I, I started to ask... Where, what, how is this used? And then, of course, later I went to art school and I'm using materials but have been processed and I, I started to become curious again about, again, where these materials come from and how they were made, especially in history, where they weren't pre-processed. One of the things that intrigues me about artists' paints and the, 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 the making of them is how we don't necessarily think about the way that advances in technology have 
changed art and the way we look at art. There was a uh, the um, Impressionists exhibition that's currently on in Adelaide, for example. There was a fascinating article in uh, The Australian talking about the fact that advances in the manufacturing of pigments and paints suddenly meant that colours were brighter and more Oops. kind of... Uh, and that paints would dry faster, allowing the Impressionists to actually create the, the works that they created. They were adapting to technology in the same way that a, uh, a digital artist now might make use of new technology to advance and change the, the very process of making work. So that kind of technical side of art making is something that you also then explore in this book. Yeah, I, 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 as an artist, and of course, you know, as a well artist, you, you're, you're curious about the history of art and, and you read so many texts and you go to so many exhibitions, in particular you know, historical exhibitions. And I've always realised there was part of the story was missing, which was, as you say, that, that the technology of materials actually informed the art, these great advances, these sort of shocks of the new, which have happened throughout history, are often related specifically to, to advances in technology, in particular, more, most importantly, really brightness of colour is a, probably the classic example in the Renaissance with the introduction of lapis lazuli, uh, or ultramarine, I should say, genuine ultramarine from lapis lazuli, the uh, construction or invention of uh, vermilion, synthetic vermilion, and then, of course, as you mentioned, the Impressionists. We, we couldn't have had the, the Impressionist palette without those colours of the 19th century, the cadmiums and cobalts, ceruleans, even the lead chromates. And another thing that is not specific to colour, but, of course, also um, the American artist Rand uh, invented the first collapsible tube, and that allowed artists to go out into the field and paint en plein air, which had really not been possible to artists prior to that. They would go into the field, do sketches, come back to the studio, and paint their finished work, whereas Monet and the others were actually now doing the whole the whole work actually in the field, because they had colours that they could easily and safely travel with. So, I guess a lot of people kind of there's no real awareness for for so many people of these advances that have then pushed art forward. Is that one of the reasons you wanted to write the book? Yeah, I, 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 it's been something that's been on my mind for well, really at least thirty, maybe thirty five years. I started a company and of course I deal with colour, I make artists oil colours. We supply pigments to artists, so at the moment we have about 110 colours available. And people are always asking me what, you know, where these things come from, and in particular the historical, because the stories attached to them are so magnificent and gruesome and grisly and filthy and dirty and smelly, but that's all the reason why they are quite extraordinary. Um, and I really just wanted to share that knowledge that I've luckily, very luckily, been able to build up over the years. So let's talk about some of the history of colour then, because uh, one of the earliest colours that humanity would have had access to would be black from yeah. from soot, for example, mm -hmm. uh, or from ochre. Mm -hmm. um, the the colour purple is one that perhaps fascinates me mm -hmm. because it's it's associated with royalty. Is that because the manufacturing and making of purple pigments and dyes was so expensive? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the violet, you're, the purple you're talking about, of course, is Tyrian purple, which is made from the uh, Tyrian whelk, which is a small predatory sea snail. It has a small gland and it produces one drop of what in essence is the dye. And it takes 250,000 whelks to be sacrificed to be able to make one ounce, that's 30 mils, of dye, of uh, violet dye. Uh, and of course, because of that expense, it was reserved very much for 
uh, nobility, or more importantly, through the Roman Empire, for the emperors themselves. Uh, in fact, if uh, at certain points in uh, during uh, different reigns of, of the uh, emperors, uh, you could be imprisoned. You could even lose your life if you were seen, if you were found um, owning or certainly wearing the purple, which was reserved purely for nobility. Mm. In terms then of more modern advances in pigment making, I mentioned uh, in the, uh, when I was kind of speaking about this interview, uh, I mentioned Prussian blue, which mm. is what the the first modern artificially manufactured mm. colour. Mm. How do you? artificially manufacture a colour, a pigment? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a good example. Uh, serendipity plays such an incredible part in the invention of colour. Of course, it plays an enormous part in the advances in any parts of technology. Um, but in this case, uh, the artist, uh, the paint, uh, the colour maker was attempting to make a, what was called Florentine Lake, which was actually something based on carmine. Um, and by accident contaminated the material with some uh, fat which had blood in it, the reaction created this first blue, this deep blue called Prussian blue. So sometimes it's by accident. Uh, the 20th century, probably with the, the advances in uh, modern chemistry, was the first time that uh, manufacturers can literally work out what colour they're going to make before they even start constructing it. And that's the greatest breakthrough in the in the 20th century. So all of the modern, what we call organic colours, the ones with the tongue twister names, quinacridones, thalocyanines, diarylides, etc. Uh, they are all uh, constructed from carbon and oxygen uh, chains. Whereas colours like the first synthetic, the Prussian blue, a little bit more basic and of course in a sense all the more enjoyable because you can sort of in a sense have a more visceral understanding of how it was created. People are still making colours today, of course, as well. Uh, I know that there are artists who are making kind of the blackest of blacks possible and the pinkest pinks and starting to get into feuds with one another, banning. Kind of one person might say, I own the rights to this colour, no one else can have it. Another artist will then say, well, I've made a brand new colour and everybody can have it except you because you won't share your colour with the world. It's, it's almost <laughs> petty, but it's fascinating to know that people are still inventing colour. I think that was the other thing. Um, probably only about 15 years ago, I started to realise that there are these new generation of pigments that are being created right now. And so if anyone thinks somehow that we've come to the end of all colour or colour being manufactured in pigment form, it's continuing constantly. It's been driven by concerns over to uh, toxicity, uh, whether that's to humans or to the environment. Uh, it's also in regard to permanence. Uh, and of course, that means it's being driven by uh, industries far bigger than the fine arts. Uh, it's being driven and always has been. It's been driven by things like textiles or being driven by uh, plastics, automotive coatings, etc. And they, they, they will pile enormous amounts of money into R&D. We as artists luckily get uh, the, the advantage at the very end of these extraordinary pigments and, and they keep being developed. You're absolutely right. Yeah. How limited are we in terms of what colours we can see? Uh, is, will the, essentially, is the, the, the physical construction of the human eye and our ability to perceive only a, a narrow range of light, will that eventually limit the manufacturing of colour or will people just keep making colours that you perhaps can only see when you put on the right pair of goggles? Well, last year when we... So the book comes, came about because we, last year I put together an actual chromatopia exhibition, which we had around about two hundred pigment exhibits and, and, it, and within that space we actually had two rooms that were sort of more interactive and we had scratch and sniff colours, we had heat sensitive colours so that people would put their hands on it would change from violet to red and we also had um, 
fluorescent pigments uh, that are, are invisible in daylight. And when you hit them, though, with UV light, then they suddenly shine out of, out of the white natural light around us. So, yes, you're right. The, the human eye is conditioned to be able to see a certain part of the, of the wavelength. And if we use other types of light source or potentially heat or uh, energy, we can actually have other colours uh, reveal themselves. And I think that's fascinating. And a lot of those obviously already in in, in, in in practice being used in particular obviously the fluorescence for things like day glow and also the glow in the darks because i'm sure all of us grew up with the um glow in the glow in the dark little stars on our, on our bedroom ceiling color can be dangerous as well there are colors that have poisoned people yeah, I, I think one of the things that fascinates most people is this extraordinary danger in a lot of it, whether it be arsenic, mercury, lead, so many of these materials that are, as you said, extremely dangerous, uh, are actually the basis of so many of the most beautiful colours. So inherent within their beauty is extra extraordinary toxicity. Uh, arsenic in particular, used in colours like the emerald green of the 19th century, was used extensively in... Uh, commercial products, including wallpaper. And in itself, it's quite safe. Uh, emerald green has an arsenic compound to it, but normally it's locked in and it's not a problem. Unfortunately, in damp climates, the moisture reacted with the emerald green pigment and released the arsenic as a vapour. It was used enormously in uh, children's nurseries throughout Europe and North America, and unfortunately, um, many uh, children died poisoned by those arsenic vapours in, in their sleep. There's also a, a poisonous golden pigment that I had never heard about until I started looking at your book. Orpiment, yes, yes. Um, Orpiment and its sister, uh, Rialgar, or I should say they're meant to be brother and sister, they're very, very, uh, they derive from arsenic and they are horrifically uh, poisonous because they have very high arsenic content. They have to be handled with great care. And obviously you imagine that nobody is using those colours in art material making anymore. And that's one of the other things going back to your saying about advances, safety to the artist. I mean, no one wants to be dying for their art. If you've just tuned in, I'm talking to David Coles about his book Chromatopia, A History of Colour, which is literally documenting the, the creation of, of pigments used by artists over time from prehistory to ancient history to uh, recent history and, and through to the modern day. It's also beautifully illustrated as well, photographs by Adrian Lander, which I imagine the very process of printing must have been kind of uh, problematic to make sure you get the colours right because yeah. we know that when anybody who has looked at a reproduction of a painting in an art book and then seen the original yeah. will see that the difference in tone and colour and brightness and so forth is it's never the same so kind of trying to get the colours right in the book was that a, a tricky process yeah it was a tricky process because of course uh, printing, you know, is is done with a limited number of colours, you know, the CMYK, or obviously in this case with the book, a larger number of colour heads, but still relatively small amount. It's not specific colour to to colour. So we obviously had a lot of um, uh, what what are called uh, wet pages, which are sort of like printing pages prior to going to full press. Constantly colour correcting, making sure we were absolutely spot on. Adrian, the photographer, was obviously very much involved in that, and, and I think we ended up with some very accurate colour reproduction. 
Chromatopia is published by Thames and Hudson. It comes out this month uh, and uh, retails for forty nine ninety nine. It's a beautifully illustrated hardcover book, which you'll be able to find in good independent bookstores everywhere. Uh, David, a final question. Do you have a favourite colour? I knew you were going to ask me that one. <laughs> do you understand why I wear black? I wear black so I don't have to choose all of my any of my children. No. Um, every week it changes. I love them all. I love them all. They, 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 they just enrich my world. I hope they enrich um, people's world as well. Rather than a favourite colour, which I have to ask is a flippant question, <laughs> do you have a favourite process of colour making? I do because I did it last year because it was important to understand the process of making. I made rose madder, one of the most famed colours of the 19th century, it's colour drawn from the madder plant, from the roots. And it is a, a beautiful process and exquisite, exquisitely pink, but also just so delicate and quite extraordinary that out of this uh, unbecoming twig or root, you actually get this exquisite colour. I think it's still beautiful. And I presume that's documented in the book as well? It is, of course. (laughs) So the book, as I said, is called Chromatopia, A History of Colour, published by Thames and Hudson. Look for it in your local independent bookstore. It's written by David Coles and uh, illustrated with photographs by Adrian Lander. David, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Lothian has written a book called Gorilla Kindness and Other Acts of Creative Resistance, Making a Better World Through Craftivism. Sarah, what is craftivism? So craftivism is the uh, use of craft for political purposes. So um, there's lots of different examples that are happening all around the world, but it shot to fame uh, a year ago, a couple of years ago, with the pussy hat um, movement in the um, in the women's march. So that was one example of people using craft for protesting purposes. But there's heaps of different ways to use craft to raise your voice. And so I wanted to write a book that covered as many crafts as possible because usually craftivism um, people talk about um, knitting and crochet like yarn bombing or cross-stitching so I wanted to bring all the crafts to the fore. When did you first kind of get involved in this this idea of using craft for good? <laughs> um, well, my grandmother used to knit and crochet and sew dolls for charity and she would spend all year doing it and then have a sale at um, Chadston every year just before Christmas and then give the money to charity. So that's sort of where it started. But my own personal one was I started doing works called Gorilla Kindness where I would make um, handcrafted little items items like fake cupcakes or little houses and put them out in the public for people to find and take home just to make their day a little nicer and the world a nicer place. And that's sort of where my um, my activism came from was, you know, being kind to people. <laughs> and changing the world one small bespoke artwork at a time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it at the moment it's just... The world is so focused on being bastards to each other, basically, you know, and like if you think about reality TV, it's always focused on the drama and the bitchiness and um, people, 
I feel that that sort of bleeds out into everyday life. And with politicians on the um, parliament floor just acting like school kids, I think that um, kindness can be an act of rebellion and I'm here to do that. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, the book itself is not just uh, a guide to or a kind of an encyclopedia of craftivism. It's also a, a, a how-to manual because the back half of the book is full of uh, its uh, there are patterns, for example. Yep. There are guides to how to how to quilt, how to how to cross stitch, how to crochet. Yep. Well, what I wanted to do was um, I wanted to present a bunch of projects that people could use for any cause, rather than um, saying here are the ten causes that I believe in, so you will make these projects. Um, dedicated to these causes. I wanted to make sure that anyone who had a cause that they wanted to promote could use these kinds of crafts. So I made 30 projects in lots of different kinds of crafting, including um, baking and stenciling, because if you think about the the slightly dodgy craft books from the 70s and you could stencil the baby's room with things. So I'm reclaiming stenciling and I'm reclaiming paste-ups as well from um, decoupage and collage and showing people how they can use those for um, any cause that they are passionate about. Now, a lot of people, a lot of kind of activism uh, is a direct response to something. It may not necessarily change the world, for example, but it can highlight inequality. Um, uh, Antifa, uh, who stand up to fascism, for example, yep. can, by their physical presence in the street, intimidate kind of neo-Nazis and stop them marching. Yep. Uh, so that's the kind of direct outcome that, that activism can have. What kind of direct outcome can craftivism have? You're not necessarily going to change the world, but you could change a person, you could change their day, for example. That's exactly right. And I think that activism comes in many forms. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so not everyone feels comfortable with like going to a protest and waving banners and shouting and things. And I think so for example, the marriage equality debate, there were people going out and protesting and there were people doing flyer drops and there were people just painting their fences and that was their quiet moment of with a rainbow. But you all of these things become like snowballs into an avalanche. So I think that there's space for everybody's style of activism on a cause. And it also, it keeps the causes in people's mind, in the public mind. Again, with the Yes campaign, there were rainbows everywhere and there were posters stuck to pylons and there were, um, I saw in the city, somebody in their office window had post-it notes just stuck up in a rainbow. And so, and everywhere you looked, there were rainbows. So. It kept the cause in people's minds. So I think that there's heaps of space for act, um, craftivism as w in the activist society. And the, uh, the, the Yes campaign is a really nice example because to this day, uh, just recently, I went past... I was on a tram and I looked out the window and I saw somebody's rainbow painted fence that is still rainbow painted and it made my heart jump for joy oh, for a moment. Just, just that brief kind of interruption into daily reality that can for a moment allow a bit of sunshine into your life. That's one of the things that these kind of small acts of guerrilla kindness can do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I love about it is that it can just make, even if it just affects one person, it makes somebody happy. And the idea of that 
that it ripples out, you know, like you might be having a crappy day, but um, you see a rainbow fence or you find a piece of guerrilla kindness and then, or even like street, like coming across street art. And so, you know, you don't, you don't go home and kick the cat and the cat won't chase the mouse, you know, that kind of like it ripples out and it just makes the world a slightly better place. And I think that the world is such at the moment that even tiny sparks of beauty and kindness is really important. <laughs> well, and to give a, a, a practical example from your own creative practice, the fact that after Christchurch uh, experienced kind of a, a hugely destructive earthquake, um, you went over to Christchurch and made kind of small handmade made kakapo yeah. kind of for people to find. Yeah, I did. So the kakapo is an endangered New Zealand parrot and there's only 124 of them in the world, or there was when I did the project. Um, there's more now, so that's awesome. But And so I wanted to do something really nice for the people of Christchurch because um, I know that in the aftermath of the avalanche, um, people were moving away in droves and they were, it, was, they were, it was a really hard time to be in Christchurch. So a couple of years later, because I didn't want to like swoop in right then and there, you know, you need to let the emergency services and everything else happen. But so about three years after the earthquake, I went over and I, I sewed um, some kakapo birds and I was only going to make 30 or so, but I contacted the kakapo recovery um, group, which is a government uh, agency, and said, I'm going to do this thing. Is that okay? Because I'm kind of using your bird. And they came back and went, oh my God, that's amazing. How many are you planning to make? Because there's 124 kakapo in the world. And wouldn't it be great if you made 124, like one for each of them? So suddenly I was going from 30 to 124 kakapo, which was a lot more than I thought. But so, and yeah, over 10 days, I put about around 10 a day and let people know where I was going to be dropping them next and just wanted to spread some joy around, which... I, I hope I did. I got a lot of media attention and um, T Papa, the National um, Museum, wanted to collect one. So that was awesome too. But really, I just wanted to do something nice for these folk that had gone through yeah. such hardship. And I can imagine from uh, uh, just empathising with, uh, with those people, you've survived an earthquake, your house has been demolished, you're in the process of rebuilding your life. You've lost all your stuff, like the yeah. amount of people who just had nothing left after so the earthquake. suddenly, I know, uh, picking up a newspaper from a cafe table and discovering a stuffed kind of felt kakapo under, hidden mm. under the paper or on the shelf of, of the library where you weren't expecting to find it. Again, that small moment of joy can, yeah. can really kind of... It, those cumulatively, that all adds up. Yeah, yeah. And that's so that's what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to spread some niceness in the world, but also let people um, raise their voice and promote whichever cause that they're, they're keen on. And at the same time, you're also, by writing guerrilla kindness and other acts of creative resistance, you're teaching people crafting skills as well, which... Yes, they can use it to uh, kind of to help sow a, a protest banner for their next rally. But you've also got advice in here as to how to repair holes in in kind of in clothing, in shirts, in jumpers. Yeah, so. absolutely. So that's visible mending, and that's really important because um, the environmental impact of um, buying new clothes is really huge because especially with the really cheap fashion that people buy, and then they'll it'll rip because it's really cheap, and then they'll throw it out. And Australia throws out like. 1.5 million tonnes of fabric a year. So learning to mend, plus um, so many um, clothes are 
work produced in sweatshops where people are paid very little. So learning to mend clothes or doing something with that fabric that you now can't, can no longer wear, like making quilts, is also like, it's just as activist as, you know, going and sewing a protest banner. So I wanted to highlight that as well. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Sarah from Lothian. Uh, we're talking about her first book, Guerrilla Kindness and Other Acts of Creative Resistance, Making a Better World Through Craftivism. Um, if people want to find a copy, where do they go? Are we talking good independent bookstores? Do they have to order it online? What's the deal? I know you can get it from good independent bookstores. I know that it's in readings or it will be. It's being released on the 1st of September in Australia. It's already released in America. Um, but I also have an exhibition coming up. So it's a week-long exhibition and book launch, which has all the projects in it. And because I wanted to um, highlight the fact that you could use each project for various causes, I made at least two or three of each of the items. So this gallery is going to be full of handmade protest items. Um, and that's on from the 23rd for a week at the Borough Underground on Brunswick Street. So from uh, next Thursday? Yes, next yes. Thursday. Next yep. Thursday, the 23rd through until Tuesday, the 28th of August at the Borough, formerly known as ASO Studio uh, at 83 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Exhibition entry is free. Yep. Uh, and the launch opening party, book launchy, uh, celebratory bit uh, <laughs> is Thursday, the 23rd of August from 6.30pm until 830 p.m. So yep. I, I imagine there'll be copies of the book for sale Yes, there. there are. There'll be copies of the book and when we run out, um, we're just going to pop to readings. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as I said, the book is called Guerrilla Kindness and Other Acts of Creative Resistance Making a Better World Through Craftivism by Sarah from Lothian, published by uh, Mango in the US. Yes, that's and correct. shipped to Australia. So uh, you should get your hands on a copy if you want to learn to change the world one small handmade detail bespoke protest at a time. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Sarah, thanks for coming in. No problems, Richard. Thanks for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.